Is there anything you would have done differently? We reported a true story. Our colleague Brian Williams is back in Kuwait City tonight after a close call on the skies over Iraq. Controversial Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh and questions about Kavanaugh's drinking in the past. Sean Hannity, come on up, Sean Hannity. Today, Andrew Cuomo is having a moment. Welcome to Stained Retros, where we break down what's going wrong and what's going right with the American news media. Eliana Johnson, I am just back from Nashville, Tennessee, where I did a lovely event, Vanderbilt University, where they couldn't have been more gracious and lovely. And I got to meet some wretches out on the road, which is always very nice. And of course, as usual, they love you more than they love me. And I'm, I'm certainly okay with that. But I have to tell you, so Nashville is, as you know, the new Austin, and everyone has moved there. Everyone is moving there and all of that stuff. And that's fine. And I should also point out that I'm a country music fan in a serious way. You know, when I was five years old, my father took me to see George Jones and Tammy Wynette on their divorce tour. They were sober. They hated each other like God hates sin, but they had gone on tour together because they were both broke while they were divorced. And my father thought it was an important, important enough that when they came to Wheeling that we go see them so that I like Babe Ruth. So I, I have my country music bona fides. But I got to tell you, lady, every place that there were five feet open, some corporate entity had hired a person to play the guitar. And like you walk through the airport, you go through the hotel, you go into the restaurant, everywhere you go, there is somebody strumming a guitar. There were two separate people playing Margaritaville in the same airport. They were competing margaritavilles and by the time i left town this morning i thought the next person that strums their six string in front of me i'm going to beat them over the head with it and go to jail because it will be worth it what a relief to be back in this beautiful city oh my gosh <clears throat> okay so what was the best part of the trip oh the best part of the the, the panel was great it was just a wonderful discussion Vanderbilt's well you have to say that what was the real best part I mean, I was there for less than, I was there for like 18 hours or something. It was like in and right back out. And other than being accosted by musicians, it was really John Sigenthaler, who used to be at NBC, was the host. And it was just really good and good, good audience and just a good time. And, you know, people talk about like, how are we going to save the news media? How are we going to save the news media? How do we restore confidence and trust? And it just sort of occurred to me that panels like that, discussions like that, wouldn't have been taking place 10 years ago, right? The way that we save this stuff is that and it's like us doing this podcast. The more, the more people care about this and pay attention to it, you know, I think 10 years ago, we were just taking for granted, like, yeah, 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 the news business stinks, but who cares? Ha ha ha, LOLZ. I don't think people feel that way anymore. And I think that the way that we save it is that people like the good folks at Vanderbilt who invited me to come, and people around the country are just doing a lot of stuff that recognizes the problem. And I think that, what, what do they say? The first step is recognizing that you have a problem. And I think people have recognized that we have a problem in the news business. And I think there's a lot of good intention people putting their shoulders into it. Okay. Well, Chris will follow up with info on the 12-step group for, <laughs> for whatever news recovery. Front page time. Chris. We have like a bucket of 
coverage of democracy under threat. Up first, we have news that CBS, I'm going to read from this Variety article, CBS will introduce a new democracy desk to its coverage of the 2022 midterm elections. Nora O'Donnell, Gail King, John Dickerson, and others may narrate the proceedings on the evening of November 8th, but three correspondents will be on standby to call attention to hiccups in voting procedures, how candidates who have denied the results of the 2020 presidential presidential election are faring in their races and whether law enforcement authorities are seeing any threats to poll workers your take well i mean why not i guess the i I have been guiltier than most in my career of treating politics like sports and you know how much i love election night and i'm really excited news nation we're working with the guys from decision desk hq I am so excited for election night and, you know, I want to win. I always want to win. That's, that's, that's my, that's my jam. And I hope News Nation does great. But I also think that I, like many, I have, I had failed in the past to treat elections with the, I don't want to say gravity, but, you know, people don't, we live in a time and I, by the way, have loved seeing Stacey Abrams get some of her comeuppance with her defeated court. But uh, we live in a time where people in both parties don't believe the results of elections. And I think it is incumbent on us in the media to treat it with a little more seriousness and to acknowledge that, you know, there are a lot of people out there who don't think that the results that we're reporting are for real. And we can't pretend that's not true. I think it is a bit ridiculous, and I very much think that the media wants democracy to be under threat and wants to cover that threat disproportionately to the actual threat. And they want to attribute that threat to a single party and play it up like the way I titled this in in our little document that we're working on is Democracy Under Threat Porn. And I very much think that this is something they are lusting after and eager to cover and play up. And I think that, you know, the the midterm elections are likely to go off smoothly and they are likely to be very much a tribute to the democratic process, much as in 2020, like things worked as they were supposed to in the end, despite the disgraceful behavior of many of our political actors. But we will hear less about that than of the like hyping of fears and drama. Well, I'm sure on election night, we can count on that the CBS news desk there will be talking about, as they, as the piece says, how election deniers from 2020 are faring or that the deniers of the results of the 2020 election are faring and tracking threats against poll workers. And on Fox, you know what we'll hear. Irregularities, irregularities, irregularities. There will be. I bet, uh, I bet you what, what you won't hear on Fox is Dominion voting machines. Yeah, I bet you won't hear that. That's for sure. <laughs> um, but the, you know, look, I've said it many times, but it bears repeating. I live in a time in American history where it's never been easier to vote and the voting process has never been more secure. We live in a golden age of democracy in the United States, but both parties and their acolytes or probably leaders in many senses in the media tell me the opposite. And they say that democracy is dying in darkness and that it's a real catastrophe. And to your point, 
it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you tell people enough that our democracy is crumbling, they will eventually believe you, right? And the anxieties that are being created here are not without consequence. And it's always hard in the news to know, you know, how much to cover, you know, too much, there's not enough, enough or too much. Are we talking about a certain topic too much or not enough? I'm all for more gravity and seriousness in talking about these election results and, and treating this subject with respect. But yes, I would not be, I'm not in favor of, as what did you call it? Democracy porn, democracy in peril porn. Yeah, democracy under threat porn. Well, moving on to like part part B of this, New York Times headline of the me- of the week is the paper's attempt to tell voters that they aren't concerned enough about the threat to democracy, oh. which is voters see democracy in peril, comma, but saving it isn't a priority. And the upshot of the piece is that Voters are telling pollsters that, yes, they, you know, they're concerned about threats to democracy, but they care more about inflation. And this is very puzzling to the one, two, three, four bylines on this piece at the New York Times. And so let me just read from this. Voters overwhelmingly believe American democracy is under threat, but seem remarkably apathetic about that danger, with few calling it the nation's most pressing problem, according to a New York Times-Siena College poll. In fact, more than a third of independent voters and a smaller but noteworthy contingent of Democrats said they were open to supporting candidates who reject the legitimacy of the 2020 election as they assigned greater urgency to their concerns about the economy than to fears about the fate of the country's political system. See, but I, I thought the 11 authors of this piece uh, did an excellent job. And I didn't, I, so if you, you know, the secret, of course, if you want to know what the reporter's trying to say, what are the writers trying to say, read the kicker, right? So you go, so they talk about, I, re- I read this piece as an indictment of the way Democrats are approaching this issue, which is yes, voters are concerned but it's nowhere near their top concern. It's not what they're really talking about. And, and it's an undue emphasis. So if you go to Are the- Are you trying to say I was being uncharitable to the New York Times? So if you- My go, interpretation of what they were up to here? Never. So if you go to the kicker, which is where the where reporters give it away, independent voters were far more worried about issues other than democracy. And some were willing to look past candidates' election denying stances if their views aligned on other policies. Quote, I don't believe that their opinion on whether or not the election was, quote, unquote, stolen is important, said Michael Sprang, 47, great name, Michael, 47, a senior electronics technician and independent from Jackson, Michigan. I'm far more concerned about their stance on policies that actually mattered. He added, I'm more concerned about how do you feel about the Second Amendment? How do you feel about the First Amendment? How do you feel about the state of the economy? So I read this story as talking about how Democrats' obsession with this is is a disconnect from the concerns of voters. And I think that's, I think that's right. I can be persuaded. Okay. You take the next one. Oh, this is just, I, I'm sorry. I'm mean. And let's go. Let's go. (laughs) I'm so mean. I'm so mean. Okay. He's licking his chops. Aaron Blake, Washington Post, the potential sleeper races of 2022. And they lead with, so Aaron Blake off the top makes the points, leans Republican, the atmosphere, like he says, the, he, he says the correct things. The, but we get to the first sleeper race that could surprise us. Utah Senate, 
where Mike Lee, the Democrats have not fielded a candidate and are backing 2020 independent presidential candidate, Evan McMullen, who I can only ever think of as Eglish McMuffin, but they're back. So the Democrats are backing him. And I'm not going to say that the race is not at all interesting or competitive. You know, Nate Moore and I have looked at this one. We will continue to look at it. And it's not like I'm writing off the possibility that Eglish McMuffin could shock the world and beat Mike Lee. Certainly Mitt Romney's refusal to endorse his fellow Republican Mike Lee has gotten a lot of coverage. But anyway, so here is, it's just a sentence that because of all of the obsessive coverage of McMuffin in McMullen in 2020, this one just cracked me up so much. Quote, it's possible to overestimate McMullen's chances. (laughs) It's just, you're like, no. You mean, do you mean to tell me that a that it's possible to overestimate the chances of a un, a largely unknown former CIA operative who ran a a ridiculous presidential campaign and then has hung around like a gadfly for the past two years? I mean, or no, wait, that was six years ago. Give me a break. Anyway, that should have been your obsession. Oh, my obsession. And by the way, way this next this next one should have been my obsession. Okay. Ex MSNBC boss and ex CNN boss, Jeff, respectively, Phil Griffin from MSNBC, Jeff Zucker from CNN, they sat down with Michael Smirkanish and he asked them, Do you guys think that you should have covered the Hunter Biden laptop differently before the election? And Jeff Zucker's responses were the biggest exercise in buck passing that I have ever seen in my life. So I wanted to read them. Zucker said, well, I mean, I think we, the question is we did deal with it, but the, but to the degree that, you know, you would have thought that was appropriate. I think the answer is in the final two weeks, you know, it was looked at. We did not know enough about it. And he continues, you know, frankly, with 10 days or two weeks to go, it was looked at by very credible organizations, including the Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal, and they found nothing at the time. My response to this is, it is like the classic appeal to authority. Like, dude, weren't you and your network supposed to have the best reporters looking at this, vetting this. And his response is to try to say like, well, those guys over there did it and they didn't find anything totally pathetic and passing the buck. Well, you know, I, first of all, kudos to Smirkanish for asking this question. That's uh, a cool thing for him to have done. It would be, by the way, sorry to interrupt you. If he wants to say like, I think we did the right thing. It wasn't worthy of coverage. That is a more courageous answer than, oh, well, the Wall Street Journal looked at it and they didn't think it was worthy of coverage. So, you know, we didn't do anything wrong. Like that's a pathetic answer. Well, I, I, I refer again back to what the Washington Post editorial page said about this story. I was glad of the decision we made at Fox to pass on that on day one. That story was not right and it was not ready. But as the Washington Post pointed out, big news organizations with lots of reporting horsepower should have started immediately to confirm everything that they could in that laptop, right? They should have they should have been about that work immediately. And instead of dismissing it and shutting it down, they should have got to dig it and they failed to. And 
I think I think that's the truth. And I, by the way, I'd have 100%, no percent like we were digging in on that and making every effort to get this to a place where we felt comfortable reporting it. And we simply couldn't do that. Like, that's understandable. That's respectable. I I think I think what you say is is fair. And, I, you know, I, I guess my question for these guys is certainly for Zucker, like, you know, maybe now's not the time. <laughs> maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe now isn't the time to be, to lead a public life, you know, as stuff has come out at CNN and, and as we see more and as CNN tries to make a change, you know, maybe just, maybe, you know, you're rich, go on vacation. Go, you remember when the Obamas left office, they went and like partied for a good solid summer, right? They were like out, uh, they were on a yacht with Richard Branson. Go find a billionaire with a yacht. Go kick it. You don't need to do it. Yeah, but the nature of like what makes these people tick is precisely what makes them not able to go away. You know, well, it's, in, it's like, interesting. I, I am, I am sympathetic to that. It's well, like that, that ambition, the desire for relevance, like the desire to be in the news and with the news and in the mix. Like I, I do get that. It's like that's that's hard. You've often heard me quote the father of military aviation, Eddie Rickenbacker that a man has reached the pinnacle of success when he has finally lost interest in money, compliments, and publicity. I'm good on the last two. And if I ever get to good on number one, you will never have to see me again. <laughs> I will, I, I will, ex- I will excuse Chris, myself. I feel like you've said that exact same thing before. And yeah. you said you cared about a different one. No, 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 no. I need the money. The compliments and publicity when you're young are really important. You got to make a name. You got to get going, got to have like, you got to build that rep. You've got to get people so that you can have a career. And I was, you know, obsessed with those things. But now, I mean, this is the thing I don't understand about people in our business who get really, really rich. And then they abase themselves or do preposterous things to stay. I've told you many times before about Roger Ailes line. When some contributor or some reporter or personality would be have rocks in their jaws and be complaining and causing trouble and doing whatever, Roger would say the same thing. He would say, show them the red light, which meant get them in a studio somewhere. Doesn't matter if it's for streaming or dot com or just, you know, even if even if you never use it, they need to feel like they're on camera. They need to be validated by seeing the red light. And you know, that's how you, that's how our business produces monsters, produces monsters because the people are unwholesomely attached to sticking their face in a camera. Oh, but the Phil Griffin mentioned, I didn't think you were finished, but the Phil Griffin mentioned was a serendipity because as I was, you remember Bernie McGurk, right? I do. So Bernie McGurk was Don Imus's sidekick. And in the very <clears throat> exceedingly infamous exchange in 2007 about the Rutgers women's basketball team in which nappy heads were identified and, and scholar athletes were referred to as hoes, it was McGurk was the, the guy who was bantering with Imus about this. And when younger people will not be aware of this, Don Imus was huge. In 2005, 2006, Don Imus was a media juggernaut. His show was simulcast before there was Morning Joe, right? Morning Joe was brought in as a replacement 
for Imus in the morning because MSNBC just showed Don Imus's morning show. It was simulcast broadcast radio and on MSNBC. And it was huge. And he was making shocking amounts of money. Now, <clears throat> Don Imus, RIP. I, I never particularly cared for the show because I thought that he was mean. <laughs> I thought he was mean and I thought it was, I don't know, whatever. I, it, it obviously was not made for people like me. But Bernie McGurk, his sidekick, redeemed himself, went on. He had, I, I, I listened to his show on WABC in New York. He had a drive time show in the afternoons <clears throat> and he was a good broadcaster and he passed away last week at way too young, 64 years old. So RIP. But as I was reminiscing about Bernie McGurk and the crazy media moment in 2007, 2008 about Don Imus, who ended up, of course, coming to Fox Business and finished out his career there. But I found this gem and I had totally forgotten about this. So Phil Griffin, who we just talked about in his, in his role as the head of MSNBC, I forgot that Phil Griffin was the vice president in charge of the Don Imus show, that the way that Phil Griffin climbed to the top of the pile at MSNBC was on the back of Don Imus. And Don Imus was, and then Griffin, and here's the Griffin's told the New York Times, told Bob Herbert, speaking of blasts from the past, told Bob Herbert about it, what a huge nerve it touched, the comments about the Rutgers basketball team and that stuff. And I then remembered and realized further, this was not the first time that Don Imus had said something offensive. And the story is an interesting artifact from the fairly early internet era, which is Don Imus had been saying awful stuff on air for a long time. That was sort of like raunchy humor. He was like Howard Stern with the business report and a cowboy hat. And so the raunchy stuff was sort of his stock and trade. And they'd been saying stuff. But as this article pointed out, and as Griffin realized, it was because it got captured and shared on the internet. And that because that clip made it around the internet, it made it onto TV and it ended Don Imus's career. And Phil Griffin had to let him go. And Phil Griffin climbed the ladder at MSNBC. And that's just an interesting thing to think about how broadcast, how much the broadcast world was disrupted at the beginning of this century because of the possibility to clip, collect, and share the mistakes and grosslings of broadcasters. Next, yes, we have the former Wall Street Journal reporter, Jay Solomon, who, if listeners don't remember, he was unceremoniously fired from the Wall Street Journal several years ago after being kind of a star international reporter who focused on Iran and his emails were hacked and leaked to his managers at the journal. And Reuters has a fascinating piece. Former Wall Street Journal reporter says law firm used Indian hackers to sabotage his career. And I'll read a little bit from it. A former Wall Street Journal reporter is accusing a major U.S. law firm of having used mercenary hackers to oust him from his job and ruin his reputation. He filed a lawsuit late Friday last week, Jay Solomon, the journal's former chief foreign correspondent, said Philadelphia-based Deckard LLP 
worked with hackers from India to steal emails between him and one of his key sources, Iranian-American aviation executive Farhad Azima. Solomon said the messages which showed Azima floating the idea of the two of them going into business together were put into a dossier and circulated in a successful effort to get him fired. Jay Solomon wrote a wonderful piece for the Columbia Journalism Review about how exposed you can be when your emails are leaked. And, you know, he he was really exposed and done wrong, I think, basically for not responding to this overture and saying like, no, 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 that could never happen. He's written a long, good account of this. But anyhow, if this is true about Deckard, and by the way, his source, this guy Farhad Azima is also suing Deckard. I hope he makes them pay. Yeah, it's just, it's a fascinating, I, 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 yeah, the idea that, and you know, it's funny, the stories that we think are big stories are not the ones that people, you know, live and die and kill for. The business guys are the ones who are really in the dangerous space, right? Because when there's, you know, multi-billion dollar deals on the line, people get nasty. Oh, Chris, I sent this to you and I said, this is my headline of the week. It's amazing. Uh, this story, I saw, I saw it covered on TV, but essentially an, an immigrant of, I forget, maybe Algerian of, I, I forget what nationality, living in- Start with uh, the headline. No, you got to start with the headline on this. Okay. You got well, no, no, to right no, no, so, walk so right they can... walk them right in. No, no, walk them right in. Walk right in. Okay. Okay. The headline that I was laughing so hard at was the following in the Washington Post. Discovery of girl's body in box in Paris sparks shock, comma, right-wing outcry. Right-wing outcry. So amazing. What kind of murdered girl? I mean, these people are nuts. Like, there's so much outcry. These crazy right-wingers. So this 12-year-old girl was horribly, brutally murdered and discovered in, like, a plastic box. And the assailant is, or the murderer is believed to be a, an yeah, I was right, an, an Algerian national. And so, you know. These crazy right-wingers are upset this person was in the country to do harm to this 12-year-old innocent girl. I saw a panel the other day. I forget where, but it was on TV. I was, I'm, in, I'm in a lot of airports and hotel lobbies. And it was talking about how it was unfair that Republicans are commingling the issue of illegal immigration and crime. And that, <clears throat> that when you say that because the perpetrator of a crime is an illegal immigrant, that that is somehow material, that that is wrong, that's wrong to say. And the person, I can't remember who it was, but said, well, you know, if that person, you know, we could say that the problem was if, if, a, if a native-born American commits a crime, we could say, well, it would, they let his Irish grandparents in. And that would be just as germane. And I certainly get the race baiting, brown menace, demagogic awfulness that Trump and many Republicans have engaged in around vilifying immigrants. This is a hundred percent true. But when you, when one ignores the clear connection here that it's something different, if so, most most murders are committed by family members, acquaintances, and friends. You, If you're going to be murdered, you're most likely going to know your murderer. And that doesn't make the crime any less tragic or any less awful. But the, to contort yourself into a pretzel over not acknowledging one basic fact here, which is it would have been better 
if the elite, and I don't know the legal status of this Algerian, but in the United States, it would, it, Democrats should say it would have been better if this person had not gotten into the country illegally or once he was in the country illegally had been deported. That would be better to say, as opposed to the pretzel logic of like, well, it doesn't really matter. And, it, and you know, you're just did it like just say it and move on. And fighting over it is politically stupid and makes and, and makes a journalist look goofy. Totally with you. And not only that, to shame, to shame and try to humiliate the people who are upset about it. Well, the phrase right wing outcry, I hope everyone there's outcry across the political spectrum in France about the horrific slaughter of a little girl named Lola. I hope that that's outcry, period. Now, the question then is, does this result in more anti-immigrant sentiment? Yes. That's a story and that's interesting and that's worth getting into. But, you know, th this is, a, I guess, the Washington Post doing the French version of Republicans pounce. So this is like Le Pounce. Yeah, 100%. Yes, Le Pounce. Yeah, 100%. Le Pounce. You're up next, Chris. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> okay. This is a small thing. This is a small thing. But I keep noticing. So the Vladimir Putin, worst czar ever is has declared martial law in the the occupied parts of Ukraine which of course is a horrible news for the people who live there and the the worst depredations the worst human rights abuses the worst and you know I'm I have only sadness in my heart for those people and only admiration for the courage that I, you know, my theory that the Ukrainians are the West Virginians of Europe. <laughs> They're tough. No, man. I, I don't. They, they hang in there. They're tough. They're tough monkeys. And I, I, I just admire the hell out of them. But the, so this, this word I noticed a lot and it's every, it's everywhere. I'm not picking on MSNBC or CNBC, but it's just, it was the one closest at hand. Putin introduces martial law in illegally annexed Ukrainian regions. So if you just Google news search Putin illegal, you'll see all of these stories about the illegality of Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine. And I keep thinking, this is a war, right? Illegal creates a notion that somehow there is a controlling legal authority that can prosecute this or has declared this. Vladimir Putin can do this because he has the military might to do it. That's why he's doing it. It's not like we're going to arbitration, right? This isn't like a contract dispute over these provinces. And it's not like he's going to be prosecuted for this. And the use of the word illegal hides the truth, which is this is a damn war. This is a shooting war in which people are getting killed, not a not a legal dispute. And I don't, I guess, I guess it's in a, in, in some degree, probably to some substantial degree, aping the language of the United Nations. But this is not a legal question. This is a moral question and it's a military question. And whether or not the West has the, the will and the force at arms to repulse these invaders and help the, or rather to help the Ukrainians repulse these invaders. And that's what this is about. This isn't a legal question. We can have a war crimes tribunal after 
to talk about the abuses of, but don't, I, I think this kind of coverage invites a, the, the wrong kind of thinking that somehow the UN or somebody or anybody is going to intervene here and that Putin will say, oh, I didn't know it was illegal. We'll back away. <laughs> you, you also have a bone to pick with, I'm sure listeners will be shocked, a Washington oh, Post story on so former American military officials providing consulting services to the UAE. Well, just hit us, hit us. No, it's just a little thing, which is, so last week, the Washington Post had a big expose on how the Saudis have hired hundreds of former American military personnel as military advisors, blah, 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 blah. And I kind of got it when they were talking about the Saudis. This is a, you know, a, a from a from a human rights standpoint, from a, you know, and by the way, the Saudis who are screwing us over so so lavishly right now on oil prices as they're as they're bolstering Vladimir Putin's war machine by clamping down on oil production. So I'm like, okay, well, this is kind of interesting. The Saudis are not exactly a pariah state, but it's a little bit yucky, but we rely on them and we sell them a lot of hardware and Americans know how to operate that hardware and we train their officer course. So like, it's complicated, but it's interesting. <clears throat> so they did that one. And then they came back this week with the sequel. UAE, United Arab Emirates, relied on expertise of retired U.S. troops to beef up its military, says this very long, very long piece by Craig Whitlock and Nate Jones. Well, who the hell do you think they were going to get to beef up their military? They're our allies. We sell them the stuff. Who are they going to hire? Are they going to hire Canadians? Are they going to hire Mexicans? No, they're going to hire the United States. They're going to hire Americans because they're buying American equipment and Americans have trained their officer corps and they are they have a military that is mimicking the United States military. And I just find this like, sneering at Jim Mattis and others for taking contracts to be advisors to, again, our allies, the United Arab Emirates. I don't, it, it just was, I, my my point in bringing it up, it just is another cautionary tale about there is no correlation between the amount of time it takes to report a story and the amount of effort that it takes to report a story and reader interest and newsworthiness. And we often make this mistake, which is we work really hard on something. And so we want it to be important. And it's hard to say, well, we work pretty hard on this. And as it turns out, it's not really worth a 25 graphic, 5,000 word, massive piece about this. It's just, it, it's, it's okay to say that you didn't strike Pater and that you can write a little something and move on. All right, Chris, up next, we got an interesting one. Jeremy Peters and Rachel Abrams have a New York Times piece about the fact that Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News, is about to be deposed in this $1.6 billion Dominion voting lawsuit. And the piece is an examination of what they term her like hands-off management style with regard to talent, which, you know, for... For the lay person, let's just like say, you know, she let these people go on the air and say whatever the heck they wanted, even though she probably knew better. And the piece says, you know, they've surfaced emails that suggest as much, but she's like not, you know, she she's not keeping them on a very short leash. 
And it says the headline is Fox News CEO's strategy at center of $1.6 billion lawsuit. And, you know, what comes out in this, and it's been obvious in a lot of coverage at Fox, is Fox is placing a lot of value on the fact that she is a woman after the Roger Ailes era. And I am going to jump to and read the quotes they are, you know, the sort of thing they are relying on to shore up her credibility. So it says her supporters are quick to point out that Ms. Scott has elevated numerous women into powerful spots, forming a quote league of their own as some inside Fox have taken to calling it Dana Perino, Harris Faulkner, Sandra Smith, and Martha McCallum all have their own daytime shows. And for the first time, a woman Shannon Bream is the host of Fox news Sunday, the network's signature political talk show. If she were the CEO of CNN, let's be honest, the cover stories would never end, said Ms. Perino, a former aide to President George W. Bush, who co-hosts two hours on Fox News every weekday. She doesn't get that kind of recognition, but she doesn't need it either. So my question is, obviously, they're placing, you know, they're building up this idea that she's this feminist, which is BS. But but let's say this fails and they are on the hook for this lawsuit, like, will that affect her and her position as the head of Fox News at all, given the value they're placing on her gender and her elevation of other women into, like, on-screen slots? Well, there's a lot of other women out there that could do the job. So if being being a woman was what was... Look, I, I, I should say at the beginning, as has been reported, I have been called as a witness in these cases, and I'm going to tread really lightly around it. But of course, if Fox is gets a multi-billion, multi-billion dollar verdicts against it or billion, you know, multi-billion dollar settlements and stuff like that, obviously there will be consequences for the leadership. And- Can I press you on that? Okay. R- real quick. Are there a lot of other right-wing women who could do this job? Like, I'm actually not sure that's true. I don't I mean, think she's you want... not doing the job so well. I don't she, think because she's like the the upshot of this piece is she's not doing the job. She's not managing the talent. She's not yanking the leash, you know, on them when they're doing things that are reckless. So, like, who's next in line? Who who's like the titan of right-wing female television news producer? Other than you, like, going to do this job? Other than you. I am out uh, of TV news for a long time. You take it though. You do it. You take the gig. And you actually would probably be quite excellent. But Oh, Chris, tell me more. But look, here the the I don't think I have no idea what Suzanne Scott's politics really are. Right. I don't know. I I I do not know. I you know, I'm I don't. I don't think it's essential to have a right winger. I don't think it's essential to have a right winger as the CEO of Fox News any more than I think it's essential to have a left winger be the head of news for NBC. As a matter of fact, I think that's probably the wrong answer. I think it's important to have somebody who's who's. Views reflect those of the average viewer who understands the viewer, who is sympathetic to the viewer. Like, I I do think that's important. Well, I don't think you want somebody who's hostile to the viewer. I don't think you want somebody who has disdain or scorn for the viewer. I think what you would want, I think, uh, so if I were, so you're thinking about who would be the ideal person to run a news organization. And I think you want somebody, as you say, who is sympathetic, who has a heart for the the audience. 
but I don't think you want the same person as the audience. I think that the interests are not coterminous. And, you know, I think what this point, what this piece points out is if you give only dessert, the audience loses its taste for green beans, right? That is true. And if the idea is that we're never going to tell you what you don't want to hear, and I think this piece, you know, this, this piece is an interesting little snapshot about how the, the way journalism, media journalism particularly works. So Fox cooperated with this piece. They made talent available. They commented on the piece. They participated in the piece, obviously in an effort to shore up Scott ahead of the storm, right? So this is smart media placement for the media relations department at Fox, which is to say, let's burnish her image. Let's burnish the boss's image in this difficult time. So taken one way, this is an acknowledgement of the difficulty that she finds herself in. So there's that piece of it. But then Jeremy Peters weaves around it the rest of the story, which I think the strongest juxtaposition is about in the Ailes era, what happened when you got out of line versus in the Suzanne Scott era, what happens? And that's material. I well, don't... the example he uses, and it's it's interesting because I lived through it. Yeah. Um, he says, you know, when Sean Hannity was supposed to speak at a Tea Party rally in 2010 and I was on the staff, you know, Roger got wind of it and was like, airlift yourself out of there immediately, immediately. And that was like, a, I mean, that, that was a crisis at the time. And now it's like, you know, par for the course that Hannity and Tucker and these guys speak at political rallies. So, yeah, that's that's the trajectory. That's and it's 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 penny wise and pound foolish, right? You keep it going, you hit the next quarter, you the the one of the advantages that Roger Ailes had was that he made Fox News. It was his. He created it. I was talking with John Sigenthaler about this. To do the counterfactual, imagine if NBC News would have given Roger Ailes MSNBC, right? So he was running CNBC, and it was called America's Talking, I think, and it would go on to become CNBC. I forget exactly what the order of battle was. But in the end, Rupert hires Roger away and tells Roger, go for it. Create a right-of-center cable news network. And Roger did. Think about what Roger would have done with MSNBC. What would that world have looked like? It's 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 fascinating to think about. But Roger's affection for his creation was so great that it exceeded. He wanted to obviously make money and get rich himself, which he did. But his affection for his creation was so great that he couldn't allow it to be broken or sullied he envisioned that this would be his legacy forever. And it's different. Wrongly, to, it turned out. <laughs> it's different to be the successor than it is to be the creator. And when you're the yeah. successor, you're trying to just like, can I keep it going? Right. Can we just sort of keep this going? <clears throat> and eventually you run out of road and that's when you get a rebuild. Right. And that's when you say, okay, now we got to start over again. And now we got to Now we got to rebuild. And the part that I think Suzanne Scott deserves credit for and gets it in this piece is looking for ways to build out other platforms, the streaming service, the lifestyle brand, 
right? The, the book imprint so that you can bake Steve Ducey's cookies so that you can wear Fox gear so that you can have a whole Fox lifestyle and do that. And, and maximizing the saturation of the super users is profitable and does, it's not innovation, but it sure is maximization. And she deserves credit for that. Chris, it is time for our style section. We're flipping all the way to like a 32. Here we go. Yep. Hit it. Okay. Headline. Do you read the athletic? No, you don't care about sports. So the New York Times bought the athletic and I'm, I'm a fan. I really enjoy the athletic. And uh, I like that. I didn't even need to answer before you were just like, no, you don't. No, I know you don't. I know you don't. I know better. I don't really. I I know better. I know that you were not last night watching the Phillies play the Padres. But so here's the headline in the athletic. Kevin Durant purchases major league pickleball expansion team. And I got to tell you, I never in my life thought that those words would go together in that order. You clicked? Did you click? Of course I clicked. First of all, is there major league pickleball? Question mark. Expansion? Question mark. Kevin Durant? Question mark. Kevin Durant is a, I, I guess, a journeyman, a legendary journeyman who goes from team to team in the NBA, adding his muscle and grit to, he's he's a player for the Brooklyn Nets. Sorry, New Jersey. I'll read you the lead. Kevin Durant is picking up the pickleball craze. The Nets star and Rich Kleiman, his business partner, have purchased an expansion team in Major League Pickleball. 35V. Their investment company will also serve as strategic partners for the league while running their team. Meaningless quote. I love this phrase. Climate said in a statement, we can't wait to build this team from the ground up, as well as to work to elevate the sport and league to unprecedented heights. As an avid pickleball player and fan, the interest in the sport was a natural fit. And it goes on and it goes on and on and on and on. Now, let me tell you pickleball people something. America has had quite enough of you. We have had quite enough of the pickleball. I see you with your rackets. I see you freaking out. You ask everyone that you are seated next to at a dinner about playing pickleball. But I am drawing the line at professional pickleball. I, I am drawing the line. I would rather watch cornhole, professional cornhole, which, as you know, is the only sport sponsored by baked beans. I would rather watch professional cornhole or the other day, I saw ESPN was showing the national championship of knife throwing. So I would totally watch that. I would, that sounds amazing. I would totally watch knife throwing before I would watch expansion. I like it's not all expansion, expansion professional pickleball. I don't know what's going on, people. I don't know what the matter is, but you know, spend I some time with your family. Throwing. Don't watch, don't okay. watch strangers play pickleball. Just go go do something else. Okay, well, it is now time for our Obsessions of the Week, where we break down the stories that we can't get out of our heads. And mine is quite brief. I opened my newsletters this morning to find the following piece in Politico magazine. Charlie Kirk needed a friend. Subtitle, the, quote, beanpole of a kid finally found his click, not in high school, but among elite Republican donors. And the upshot of the piece is that, like, you know, some reporter went and tracked down all the people that Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA, the right wing group, like he's 
from Chicago and he was an outcast in high school. He was really tall. And I'm just so tired of this storyline that like, if you're a crazy right winger, if you're Stephen Miller, if you're Charlie Kirk, they're going to go find like the kid who had the desk across from you in third grade and ask them what you were like in third grade. And chances are, you know, one of these people is going to be somebody with completely different political views who is radicalized but on the other side who will say terrible things about what a weirdo you were in high school it's just so ridiculous and unserious so that is my obsession this is i i gained no understanding of charlie kirk from reading this piece you said it was ridiculous and, and reading about charlie what charlie kirk was like when he was 14 you said it was you said ridiculous and something else unserious Unserious. I, I agree. Not serious. I, I agree, but I think it also, I think those phrases would also, of course, apply to Charlie Kirk's political. To, but you know what? Well, I, I agree with that. But but yet, like, he he has made himself like a force on the right. And it would be kind of interesting to dig into, like, how did that happen? He is just a kid. Like, there is a ser I can imagine a serious piece that would be done about this that would be interesting for somebody like me to read who's, like, not entirely hostile to him. But finding, like, the person he went to eighth grade with is not that. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I, I well, can, I did not read the piece, so I can't I, I can't pretend to know. Oh, it's an excerpt from a book by Kyle Spencer called Raising Them Right, available from HarperCollins. So I, I agree with you that it's going and talking about what somebody, I guess in Kirk's case, is maybe a, to play devil's advocate, since he is a youth movement leader, he's, he is the youth pastor for the nationalist right, I, I guess his own. Since since his profit, his his field of profit and celebrity is focused on kids, I guess maybe talking about what he was like as a kid makes some sense. But I certainly agree with you that, you know, for this author to go through and talk about, you know, what, what he was like in eighth grade is a, a little much. But I, I also think that, you know, a conversation that, Yuval Levin and Jonah Goldberg had on Jonah's podcast this week comes very much to mind where they were talking about how the kind of pandering and demagoguery that Charlie Kirk engages in, and you could say the same thing of Candace Owens, who, by the way, has she succeeded in convincing Kanye West to purchase Parler? Is that accurate? It, he is purchasing Parler, which her husband owns, right? Well, he's the CEO, I guess. Yeah. Whew. Anyway, Kanye in the news. So, so the the demagogic, live owning, uh, unserious kind of work that a lot of young conservatives, or I I won't even say conservatives, a lot of young leaders on the right and media figures on the right engage in, is certainly bad for the right. It's certainly bad for, you know, it, it's bad for the country and it's bad for discourse. But thinking about that and looking at this piece and thinking about Charlie Kirk, it's bad for the individuals themselves too, right? It it, it leads them, the, the, the quest for this kind of media celebrity can't be good for them as people either. And it makes me sad to think about a guy who was really promising and really seemed like he he was enthusiastic, he was eager, and he was kind of a sweet guy. When I first met Charlie Kirk, he was kind of a sweet guy. 
and to see the change in him over time and see what he's become, you know, this, there, there are consequences. And I, I know if you hate Charlie Kirk, you don't care about the consequences for him, but maybe you should, and maybe you should think about what happens to people when they get, when, when they, and they do it to themselves, I know, but it has real consequences for them too. So I, you know, it's a sad story. You're up, you're up, Stirewall. Oh, what I do? I'm just for over your here. obsession. Oh, okay. Let's play the Colin Chicola joint about American news. We'll say presenters, since we're talking about British politics. Here's some American news presenters talking about Br- British politics. When there are so many in the world who just want stability, and this is the pure opposite of that. This is the opposite of that. This is a dumpster fire on Downing Street. And just as quickly as she entered 10 Downing Street, she was spat back out. So uh, Liz, Liz Truss, uh, obviously, uh, not, not a parliament, but at, at 10 Downing Street. So there is major upheaval in the UK. It happened minutes ago. The prime minister, the brand new prime minister, Liz Truss, resigning only six weeks into her term. If you had that on your bingo card, you're a winner today. Okay, so my obsession is the sudden and random expertise that the American political news media has in British politics in order to cover, and I got to say, it's it's an amazing story, right? The story of Liz Truss, who was, who will set the record for the shortest ever premiership in British history at 44 days, or as I said earlier today, a unit of only four Scaramucci's. That she, that, that she, that she, that she that's will, pretty good. That, she, that she will. I didn't understand actually what that meant in there, that that's pretty good. Only for, she only survived for four Scaramucci's and that is, it's, it's an amazing political story. And of course, as we know from Brexit and lots of other, we know from Brexit, we also know from Tony Blair and Bill Clinton, we know from Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, that there is a, a parallelism with our mother country, our former mother country, and our closest ally and the country in the world that we are the most culturally similar to, there is parallelism with British politics. But I got to say that listening to a lot of American journalists, reading a lot of American journalists, try to sound authoritative about British politics has made me giggle several times. And I know it's got to be covered. It's a fascinating story. There's been a ton of great coverage out there. Not surprisingly, the Wall Street Journal has done a, as they would say, a bang of job on the, on the topic. But I have enjoyed, I, I, I mentioned this every couple of weeks, but it is still my favorite journalism cartoon. It's from the New Yorker long, long ago. And it's the reporters standing around in the room. There's a dartboard divided into wedges that say like economics, national security, public health, blah, 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 blah. He's got a dart in his hand and he says, what should I be an expert on today? I mean, that's the life of a reporter, isn't it? It's what we do. Okay. Chris, it is time for my favorite part of the week, which is reader mail. And we have two great notes this week. The first is from Ken in, is it Huger, South Carolina? Let me see here. I'm guessing. H-U-G-E-R. Well, Ken writes, Eliana and Chris, I look forward to Friday knowing I start my work day listening to Ink Stained Wretches. Longtime fan of Chris's work and now a fan of Eliana's work and wit as well. I'm used to hearing pundits provide disclosure when discussing a topic they could benefit from. Jonah Goldberg discussing Nikki Haley will preface that his wife worked for her at the UN and worked on her book. 
Question. If a reporter is covering Biden's plan to forgive student loans, should the reporter disclose if they will be impacted by the plan? Most coverage comes across as cheering for it. The Charleston Post and Courier writer did disclose someone in his family would benefit. Now, when I see reporters cheerleading for it, I am wondering if they will benefit. Regards, Ken Adams from, I think, Huger, South Carolina. So, Chris, what is your first? The important, the first or the most important part, which is according to the the state, the newspaper in Columbia, South Carolina, it is pronounced UG, like. Y-O-U, emphasis oh. on the first syllable, U-G, South Carolina. And if you I'm go- so glad you looked that up. And if you go there, you can go on Gervais Street, like, but it's spelled like Ricky Gervais. Anyway, so is so should you have should the Charleston Post and Courier disclose whether somebody so the so the reporter for the Charleston Post and Courier. Uh, no, I think he's not just asking about Charleston, but any reporter covering covering this, if that reporter is applying for debt relief, yes. should the reporter disclose it? I think yes. The editor should not let a reporter who is applying for the program or a beneficiary of the program. You know, you get to a certain point where it's like, can you cover the IRS if you're getting a refund? Yes. If you're getting an audit, maybe no. <laughs> right. There, there are these are there are gray areas and you have to an editor sort of has to know it when they see it but disclosure is not as good as avoiding conflict i think it's fine i think disclosure is better than nothing but i think in a in a better scenario you would not have a reporter who was applying for this benefit this controversial benefit that is tied up that is going to be tied up in legal dispute and is a controversial thing I just would, I would not, I would, if I was the editor, I would look for somebody in my newsroom who was not involved in any way to cover the story. And I think that would be better. Okay. Next up, we've got Susan, who I take it is from Chicago. And Susan writes, dear Eliana and Chris, this is a response to Chris's comment about riblets and his desire expressed <laughs> in the prior podcast to write a book or make a documentary about America, the sandwich. My husband, Michael Gebert or Gebert, is a food journalist and made a short film entitled The History of Barbecue in Chicago. The link is below. So we're going to put it in our show notes. The link is below. I think you would enjoy it. It was nominated for a James Beard Award for Best Special Documentary. And I see, clicking on it, that it is called Sky Full of Bacon. I'm in. I'm for which it. Which is awesome. Yes. That like, I mean, that's has Chris's name all over it. Also, in case you need to know about food in Chicago, here is his food site and it is called Fooditor. So next time I'm in Chicago, I will absolutely be using this as a res- reference. And that is from Susan Snyder. Thank you, Susan. Susan Snyder. And um, I've just opened, Susan, I've just opened your husband's page and it is fantastic. I am excited about Chris, looking at- we should at the- do a joint viewing of Sky Full of Bacon. I think we should top 10 dining list for 2021 and number nine is a date shake at Shields Garden in Palm Springs, California. I like where your head's at and I'm going to be checking it out. Thanks for the word to the wise. And I would also tell everybody, get ready because it's almost McRib season. McRibness is upon us and don't go to Applebee's and eat their riblets. Go and stand in the parking lot of a McDonald's and have a McRib. Everyone owes it to themselves at least once a year to eat a sausage patty in the shape of boneless ribs dipped in too sweet barbecue sauce with pickle. But you know do what? You do, I mean? do you do the shamrock shake? 
a shamrock shake is okay. You know, that's a Lent with your filet of fish. I think for our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, that that's that's I think more of a thing for them to have with their super gross filet of fish. I mean, God bless you, people out there eating filet of fish. I don't I don't know. I don't know what you did wrong to deserve that, but you're doing it. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry for you. Chris, it is now that time for your favorite item of the week, which is when I am forced to say something nice, but you lead by example. Okay. What is your favorite item this week? I loved this story and it's a totally unnecessary story or almost unnecessary, totally unnecessary story. And also, I want to praise highly the photography for the story by Desiree Rios, but the piece is by Stephanie Saul, the great writer for the New York Times, and headline, fencing can be six-figure expensive, but it wins in college admissions how niche sports offer a pathway to the Ivy League and other elite schools. Now, look, I will say that there's some blibber blabber, and there's some social justice blibber blabber in here. I'm not going to... uh, that. That is there, no doubt about it. And some of it is unnecessary. The part of it that's necessary and important is talking about country club sports. That so, you know, if you want to be a student athlete, speaking of student athletes, if you want to be if you want to be one, um, it's hard to get a football scholarship. Because there's a lot of people who play football, right? It's hard to get a baseball scholarship or a basketball scholarship because a lot of people play those sports. Not a lot of people are fencing. Not a lot of people are fencing. But like rowing crew, lacrosse, it's more of a regional thing. Hockey is more of a regional thing. But, and golf has become very, very popular as a collegiate sport. But there are these little sweet spots where schools have well-endowed programs that alum, alumni have, that alumni have given all this money to because they remember how much they enjoyed fencing and doing this stuff. So they give all this money and these slots are there and these programs are there and it creates a weird ecosystem uh, for these people who are trying to find a leg up. You remember, what's, what's your name? The, the gal from, who played Uncle Jesse's girlfriend on Full House. Did she, she and Felicity oh, Huffman. Yeah, yeah, they, th- their kid rode, right? Yeah, or they, or they got a coach to say that they rode or they got a coach to say yeah, that yeah, they yeah. were on this. And so- this is the legitimate. They're like, here, let's take video of you on a rower. Right, exactly. Or pictures of you. Yeah. I mean, okay, I liked this story. And I will say, having gone to one of these like fancy schools that people do these weird sports at, and coming from the Midwest where people don't do weird sports. Not a lot of fencing um, in St. Paul. Like, well, my <laughs> high school actually did have fencing, which is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, what is field hockey? What is lacrosse? What is, I don't know. There were just a lot of these squash, squash. Oh, squash. And I learned about this ecosystem of these sports that I was not familiar with, but anyhow, I read this and I was like, oh God, tale as old as time. I mean, this is like what every, you know, yuppie East coast parent does. They're like, let's find the craziest sport to put my kid in and make sure my kid is like the greatest squash player on the planet. Well, the only fencing that was going on in Wheeling, West Virginia involved stolen goods. So it was slightly, it was a slightly different read for me, but I dig it. And as a father of a freshman in high school, I can, I can say that the, the terror that we confront college admissions with as parents. We look at this 
And on the one hand, you want to say, eh, whatever happens will happen. He's a smart kid. It'll be okay. You know, God is in charge of the universe. That's what you think. And then part of your brain is like, but what if, <laughs> but what if, and you start thinking about what are the, because, and it, I, I think in most parents' cases, I hope in most parents' cases, it does come from a sincere place of wanting your child to be happy and well-equipped and set up for a successful life. But I can see how it gets weird out there and I can see how it gets weird out there in a hurry. Well, my favorite item is a New York Times piece, New York Times piece about, I know I'm going to mispronounce the guy's name, Myron Rolle, R-O-L-L-E. I thought it was, was Myron Roll. Okay, Roll, who was an NFL safety. And the headline is, it's never too late to pivot from NFL safety to, neuro to neurosurgeon. And reading about this guy was amazing. I'll just read from the piece. He flourished playing as a defensive back for Florida State, where he was selected to be a Rhodes Scholar in 2009. Though he studied medical anthropology at Oxford as part of the program, Mr. Roll said his neurosurgeon dream was dormant while he pursued football glory. In England, he trained, trained for the NFL draft and was selected by the Titans in 2010. But Mr. Roll's football dream did not go as planned. Though he was competitive in practices, he never played in an NFL regular season game, and the Titans parted way with him once his contract was up. He tried to make the Steelers roster, but was cut before the 2012 season. And then he says that, it says today he is Dr. Roll, and at 35, he is in the sixth year of his neurosurgery residency at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. It's an amazing story, and I loved it. It's like one of these rare, fascinating, like really feel-good stories. I love this. And they Rhodes did Scholar and NFL player, like incredible. They they and they did it as a QA. And shout out to Nate Moore who picked this for last week's Star Waldisms. You guys have great taste. It's such, he is such a winsome man, such a charming person and how great he is in talking about wanting to be a role model. And they, <laughs> he calls, they call the group of young African-American med students who he mentors the honor roll. <laughs> so wordplay, of course. Oh, that's great. Wordplay, I love it. Wordplay gets me every time, but what a guy. And he was, and one of the things that is awesome here is he was inspired because he read the Ben Carson book, Gifted Hands, when he was, yes. when he was 11 and he read Ben Carson's book and thought when he was 11, can you imagine you're 11 and you're like, I'm either going to be a neurosurgeon or play professional football. And who knew that he'd get to do both? And I loved, they ask him, what lessons can people learn from your experience? And he says, if you look at the outside, you'll see my story as maybe something that's unattainable, right? I played in the NFL, Rhodes Scholar, now neurosurgery, but feeling doubts and uncertainty really permeated throughout my life, feeling like an outcast, handling issues with violence, dealing with work-life balance issues or challenges in your workplace. And I just found ways to overcome or mitigate these challenges through the 2% process. I don't think success looks like any particular person. I do believe that every individual has something brilliant in them and has a responsibility and a purpose that they were placed here on this earth for such a, sh for such a time as this time. So it's great. I um, like it. You really, you really picked a good one. It's a really beautiful story and it's told, it's told with love and, and deference to, you know, some people deserve, some people deserve our admiration. And this certainly seems to be one of those guys. 
Well, that is all the time we have left for the news about the news. If you have a story or a fast food item that you want us to talk about, email us at wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. That's wretches at nebulouspodcasts.com. This has been Ink Stained Wretches from Nebulous Media. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Wretches. <laughs>